Please, saints, turn in your Bibles this afternoon to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, page 1282, in the back of the, in your Adoration Bibles, 1282. We're continuing on our series, the Heidelberg Catechism, and having considered last Sunday how Christ is our chief prophet, we come this afternoon to consider how Christ is our only high priest, how Christ has not only commissioned us, but how Christ has also consecrated us, set us apart, dedicated us to God's service in God's world. We read in the first place, however, from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 25. 1 to 25 of Hebrews 10. This is God's holy word. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins." Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, "'Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for Me, and burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure.' Then I said, "'Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of Me in the scroll of the book.' When He said above, "'You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings,' These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. And so he does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every high priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Now where, is there, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more, as you see the day drawing near. There ends the reading of God's holy word. May bless it to us. 
as we meditate upon it this afternoon. Let's turn also uh, to Lord's Day 12 of the Catechism. Lord's Day 12, page 213 in the Forms and Prayers books, page 877 in the back of the song books. And as is our custom, we'll read the two questions and answers responsively with a focus this afternoon on Christ's priesthood. Lord's Day 12, question 31. Why is He called Christ, meaning anointed? Because He has been ordained by God the Father and has been anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher, who fully reveals to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our deliverance. Our only high priest, who has delivered us by the one sacrifice of His body, and who continually intercedes for us before the Father, and our eternal King, who governs us by His Word and Spirit, and who guards us and keeps us in the deliverance He has won for us. Question 32. But why are you called a Christian? Because by faith I am a member of Christ, and so I share in His anointing. I am anointed to confess His name, to present myself to Him as a living sacrifice of thanks, to strive with a free conscience against sin and the devil in this life, and afterward to reign with Christ over all creation for eternity. This the Church of Christ does believe and confess throughout the world. Well, dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we saw last Sunday when the Lord Jesus was baptized in the waters of the Jordan River, He was officially declared to be the Messiah. It was there that He was officially ordained by the Father and anointed by the Spirit to be the Christ, to be the, the long-awaited prophet, priest, and king. The Old Testament's prophets, priests, and kings were all signposts along the way to Christ. And when Christ came, all those types and shadows were finally fulfilled. And that's what we see here in Hebrews chapter 10 with regards to the priesthood. Christ came into the world not just to be our chief prophet, as we saw last time, but also to be our only high priest. He came to deliver us by the sacrifice of His body. He came to intercede for us, to advocate for us, to plead our cause in the presence of His Father. And this is what the author of Hebrews has been emphasizing in the last number of chapters of his letter. He's been highlighting the supremacy of Christ's priesthood. In chapters 4 and 5, the author shined the spotlight on Christ's perfect sympathy, how, how Christ was able to sympathize with His people perfectly. He was able to deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. In chapter 7 and 8, the author shined the spotlight on Christ's priestly order, how, how Christ was not from the order of, of the Levites, but from the order of, of Melchizedek, an order which preceded the Levitical order. And so, that makes Christ the guarantor of an even better covenant. And in chapter 9, the author shined the light more fully on the lasting significance of Christ's perfect sacrifice, which was 
at last made to make full atonement for sin. And now in chapter 10, the author moves the spotlight, as it were, from from Christ's work and more particularly to, to Christ's people. He shines the light on the effect that Christ's work has, has had on His people. The author is, is answering the questions, what kind of people have we become? What kind of people are we now able to be in light of all this work, this priestly work that, that Christ has accomplished for us? And the first thing that we discover is that Christ's people are a cleansed people. That's really the point of verses 1 to 18. The blood of Jesus has, has accomplished that which the blood of bulls and goats could never accomplish. The blood of Jesus has finally cleared away all our guilt. The blood of Jesus has finally cleansed our consciences. This you may know was central to the Levitical priesthood in the Old Testament. God used this vivid imagery of, of cleansing to help His people understand what their sin had done. That when God's people, when Adam and Eve gave into sin, they made themselves unclean. And by making themselves unclean, they were no longer fit to stand before the Holy One, the Holy God. They were so unclean, they had no right to to draw near to the near presence of God. And so they needed to be cleansed. And in God's grace and mercy, God provided that Levitical priesthood to show His people that that cleansing was possible, that cleansing was available. But the only problem was that that cleansing could never be accomplished by the blood of bulls and goats. Verse 1, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year after year, make perfect or make clean those who draw near. And the author's logic follows in verse 2 that if, that if such cleansing was possible by the blood of bulls and goats, then why did there need to be so many of them? If, if such cleansing was possible by the blood of bulls and goats, then why did these sacrifices need to be repeated endlessly year after year, month after month, day after day? If those sacrifices were sufficient, then why was the work of the priests never finished? The author, you see, is seeking to reason with his readers. His readers, you may know, have been tempted to drift away from Christ. They've been enduring all kinds of of persecution on account of the fact they've now come to Christ. And so those who were Jews before are beginning to wonder, why can't we just go back? The Old Testament system, after all, was, was good. It was full of God's grace. It was full of God's mercy, and we weren't persecuted. So can't we just go back and do things the old way? But ever since Hebrews 6, verse 4, the author has been endeavoring to show his readers that it's impossible to go back, that once you've been enlightened by the gospel of Christ, you can't go back. You can't go back to that old system, that as good and as gracious as that system was, it was insufficient to accomplish the ultimate task. Not only that, but it was now superseded by the Lord Jesus Christ. All those types and shadows on the road to Jesus, that was a one-way street. Can't go back. And that's what the author of Hebrews is seeking to press upon his readers here. 
You can't go back. This system has been superseded by Christ and his life and his death and his resurrection and ascension. You can't go back to shadows and to the old temple and to the old tabernacle because we have a new priest, a true priest, who's in the true temple in heaven. Christ finished the work which the Old Testament priests could never finish. Listen in how the author of Hebrews puts it day after day. Every priest stands offering repeatedly the same sacrifice which can never take away sins. Throughout the Old Testament, boys and girls, day after day, month after month, year after year, the priest's work was never done. Day after day, he was drenched in blood as he offered one bull, one goat after the next. It was never done. It was endless. And the result of this, the result of this unfinished work was a guilty conscience. The result we see in verse 3 was that they were reminded over and over again that, that they needed something better than these bulls and goats. They knew that as we confess in Lord's Day 5 that God could not punish a creature for what man had done. They knew that as we confess in Lord's Day 6 that because man has sinned, man must pay for his sin. To be sure, God's pardon was pictured, but it had not yet actually been accomplished. And so by faith, they had to keep their eyes fixed forward. They, they longed for the day when the true mediator would finally come. And in the fullness of time, he did come. And being fully aware of the weight of our guilty consciences, Christ came and he, and he offered himself up as the final sacrifice for sin. When Christ came into the world, verse 5, he said to the Father, sacrifice and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me, and burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. In essence, what, what Christ said, quoting Psalm 40, was, Father, the Old Testament sacrifice have proven unsatisfactory. They've proven insufficient. But you've prepared a body for me. You've prepared human flesh for me. So that I might make a sacrifice that will be sufficient and satisfactory to satisfy your wrath once and for all. And then Christ said, Behold, O Father, I have come to do your will. And by Christ's act of obedience, he, he reclaimed for us the office of priest as he resisted the devil and obeyed the Father's will all the way to Calvary, all the way to the cross. And by his atoning sacrifice, verse 10, by doing the Father's will, we have been sanctified. Our consciences have finally been cleansed. And this, beloved, is what the author of Hebrews is seeking to drive home for us the reality that Christ has finally accomplished what the Levitical priesthood could never accomplish. Verse 12, for when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, what did he do, boys and girls? He sat down. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. And by this single offering, not to be repeated, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, those who are being cleansed, made holy. 
And the point that the author of Hebrews is driving home then is to say that in virtue of this, in virtue of what Christ has accomplished, God's people can be sure that their sins have finally been pardoned. And this surety we discover in verses 15 and following is strengthened or empowered by the Holy Spirit himself. The Holy Spirit takes this message of what Christ has done. He takes the promise of this new covenant and he brings it home to our hearts. The Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant I'll make with them after those days, I'll put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds, then he adds, I'll remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Christ takes what the Son, or rather the Spirit takes what the Son accomplished and he applies it to us. This, of course, what we see pictured, isn't it, in the waters of baptism, the washing away of our sins and the new freedom to live before God with a free conscience, a clear conscience, no longer afraid of God's wrath and judgment. Where there is forgiveness of these, verse 18, there is no longer any, any offering for sin. No more offerings are needed. And this we see in the second place produces a great degree of confidence in our hearts. We see that secondly this afternoon that Christ's people are a confident people. They're confident in the first place because they have access. That's what we read in verses 19 and 20. We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he has opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. We are confident because we have access. You'll recall that when the Lord Jesus cried out from the cross and gave up the spear, what happened? The, the veil in the temple was torn in two from, from top to bottom. And, and that signified that the holy of holies, the very near presence of God, was now accessible. It was now open to everyone whose faith was in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this congregation is our confidence this afternoon that when we pray to the Father, it is as though we ourselves are, are walking through the curtain into the very near presence of God. Whereas before coming close to God would have caused to say, woe is me, I am undone with Isaiah. In Christ, we come close to the Father and we say, blessed are we from the sight of God in virtue of our union with Christ, by virtue of our being members of Christ and sharing in His anointing. God regards us as being as holy as Christ is holy. And whereas before, the, the, only the high priest could enter the holy place in that, but, but once a year on the Day of Atonement, for just a few short moments, we have permanent access, and we have perpetual access to the shed blood and torn body of Christ. The author of Hebrews is, is reiterating what he said back in chapter 4, verse 16. Let us with confidence then draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Whenever that need may arise, with confidence we can draw near to the throne of grace. In the second place, Christ's people are a confident people, not only because they have access, but also because, according to verse 21, they have advocacy. We 
have a great high priest over the house of God. In other words, we have an advocate. And this you'll notice is the second key aspect of Christ's priestly work that's noted in our catechism. Not only has Christ delivered us by the sacrifice of His body, but He continues to advocate for us by His ongoing intercession. This, according to Hebrews 7.25, is what Jesus lives to do. Consequently, Hebrews says, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to Him through faith, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Boys and girls, how can I be sure that God will hear me when I pray? How can I be sure that God will not kick me out of His presence after I have given in to sin yet again? I can be sure, boys and girls, because I have an advocate. To quote the Apostle John, my little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We can be confident because we have an advocate. Jesus intercedes for us. He prays for us. He mediates for us. To quote Article 26 of the Belgian Confession, neither in heaven above nor on the earth below is there anyone who loves us more than Jesus Christ loves us. For although he was in the form of God, he nevertheless emptied himself, taking the form of a man and a servant for us. And he made himself completely like his brothers. And so the, cat, and so the confession goes on to say, suppose we had to find another intercessor who would love us more than he who gave his life for us, even though we were his enemies. Suppose we had to find one who has prestige and power. Who has as much prestige and power, the confession asks, as Christ who is seated at the right hand of the Father and who has all power in heaven and on earth? And who will be heard more readily than God's own dearly beloved Son? Will God hear me when I pray in Jesus' name? Who will be heard more readily than Christ as He carries my prayers to the Father's listening ear. We have an advocate in the Lord Jesus Christ, the great high priest. In the Old Testament, the priests foreshadowed this advocacy through the garments that they wore. According to Exodus 28, the high priest wore stones of remembrance upon his shoulders. On, on one shoulder you had the name of, of six tribes, and on the other you had the other six tribes. And as God said in Exodus 28 verse 12, and you shall set these two stones on the shoulder piece of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And in this way, Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. The high priest also wore a breast piece. And on that breast piece also, there were, there were 12 stones, one stone for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And God said in Exodus 28, verse 29, so Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel on his breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. And what that symbolized, if you were an Old Testament Israelite, was that as the high priest went into the temple and as he went into the most holy place, he was bringing you with him into the very near presence of God. 
He had your, the name of your tribe on his shoulders. He had the name of your tribe over his heart. And you could be sure that he was interceding, that he was advocating for you as he felt the weight of those stones upon his shoulders, as he felt the weight of that breast piece over his heart. He carried the burdens of the people into the presence of the Lord where atonement was made. And they could be sure that he was advocating for them. But as we know, that was just a picture. That was just a picture. Hebrews 9.24 tells us that our advocate, Christ, has entered not into holy places made with hands, like the tabernacle and the temple, which were copies of the true things, but Christ, as our advocate, has entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. There's also another difference. Not only is Christ in heaven rather than in a shadow of heaven, the temple or the tabernacle, but Christ, in contrast to the priests of old, Christ doesn't need those Old Testament stones of remembrance to remember your names. Because your names are inscribed on his heart. They're engraved on his hands. And so we can be sure that whatever it is that we're, that we're going through, we can be sure that Christ has not forgotten us and he never will forget us. It must have been with a view to this great advocate that Isaiah wrote these words in Isaiah 49, verses 14 to 16. In verse 14, we read, But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. My, the Lord has, has forgotten me. We sometimes feel that way. We're tempted to wonder if God has, has forgotten us. But how did the Lord respond to Zion? He said, Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will never forget you. Behold, says God, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands, and your walls are continually before me. Christ doesn't need stones of remembrance, for he bears your names not just over his heart, but he bears your names in his heart. And so he cannot and he will not ever forget you. This congregation is our great confidence, is it not? That as we sang before the throne of God above, we have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. And so what do we know? We know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. What confidence we have in Christ that even when Satan tempts us to despair and tells us of the guilt within when he stands to accuse us as he did with Joshua the high priest in Zechariah chapter 3, where can I look? Upward I look to see Christ there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. As Kent Hughes says on this passage, behold, this access and advocacy, the dual sources of our confidence together. 
Behold what strength they bring. Jesus is both the curtain and the priest. He is both our access and our advocate. And so what do we read in verses 22 and 23? Let us then draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering or without bending, for he who promised is faithful. We can draw near without a doubt in our minds. We can draw near in the full assurance of our faith, confident that our hearts have been sprinkled clean, our bodies have been washed with pure water, and we can hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, because Christ who promised these things is faithful. The author of Hebrews described this hope earlier on in chapter 6 as being the anchor of our souls, firm and secure. And we're reminded here that this anchor of hope is not cast into the sea, but it's cast up into heaven, where Christ is at the right hand of God. To quote Hughes once more, it is anchored, this hope is anchored in God's presence. As the winds pick up, as the ship bobs like a cork, as we sail through all life's troubles, we must hang on to the confidence of our hope without wavering, for our hope is anchored in our access to and advocacy before God the Father in Christ the Son. We have access. We have advocacy. And so we can be confident. Christ has made us to be a competent people. Well, the final exhortation in our passage is that we should not only draw near to God, but that we should also draw near to each other, verse 24, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Not only have Christ's people been cleansed, but they've also been consecrated. Christ's people have been set apart for service. They've been dedicated to God for service. As our catechism says, by faith, I am a member of Christ, and and so I share in His anointing as priest. I am anointed to present myself to Him as a living sacrifice of thanks. As we heard in our call to worship, the Apostle Peter says that as we come to Christ, we ourselves are being built up into a spiritual house to be what? To be a holy priesthood, to offer up sacrifices to God that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Indeed, as we share in Christ, as we share in His anointing, God has made us to be a royal priesthood, a kingly priesthood, that we might proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light, that we might proclaim these things both to each other and to the world. As Paul says in Romans 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, 
to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. But as we strive to do this very thing, as we make it our aim to please God and to devote and dedicate ourselves to God, we see that part of that dedication to God involves a dedication to each other. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, says the author of Hebrews. And one of the primary ways in which we do this, he says, is by not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, because he knows that as we gather together for corporate worship, as we sing together and pray together and, and sit under the preaching of the Word together, we are stirred up for service. But the key idea of these last two verses, says one pastor, is that clinging to the Lord is not something that we do all alone, but as we hold on to the Lord, we must also hold on to one another. We must not only love God, but we must also love the household of God. This is part of what it means to be consecrated to God, to be set apart for service to God, to be set apart for service to one another, as we confess in Lord's Day 21 in the communion of the saints. That God has has showered us with all these gifts from heaven that we might use our gifts for the service and enrichment of the other members. And so as fellow priests who have been consecrated by Christ, we must spur one another on in our priestly duties, walking hand in hand, as it were, and taking responsibility for one another. And so when you see a brother or a sister who seems to be wandering away, you ought to reach out to him and encourage him to, to persevere in the faith. Or when you see a sister in Christ who's struggling or who appears to be totally overwhelmed, you ought to seek to come alongside her and to sympathize with her as Christ came alongside us and sympathized with us. Consider your fellow church members this afternoon, those sitting behind you and in front of you, beside you, and ask yourselves, how can I be a source of encouragement? How can I stir him up to love God more? How can I spur her on to live for Jesus more fully? We often ask each other, how are you doing? Sometimes we shy away from saying, no, how, how are you really doing, don't we? But how can we encourage one another and be a source of encouragement for one another if we don't really know one another? How can we pray for people's needs if we don't really know what those needs are? And so as an application of this encouragement and stirring one another up, we could say to someone, you always say you're doing fine. Is that true? Really? You, you never have anything wrong going on in your life? You have, you have no burdens, no struggles? Really? Isn't it true, beloved, that at one time or another a fellow brother or sister spoke an encouraging word to you and it made all the difference? Didn't it mean the world to you? Most of us have experienced that at one time or another, I trust. I know I've experienced that here. Sometimes a, a small encouraging word makes all the difference. And isn't it good to encourage one another, especially now as 
as the day of the Lord draws near. Indeed, the day of Christ's return is hastening on. It could be a day. It could be tomorrow. This is why the author of Hebrews said back in chapter 3, verse 12, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. We stand in a world of lies, says one pastor, and the deceitfulness of sin is powerful. Well, God of Hebrews is saying that we're called by Christ to stand together and to say to each other, don't listen to those lies, the lies of the world. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without bending for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. As I said, Christ may well return tomorrow, but are we living as though that might be the case? Is, is the devotion and service of your lives today reflective of the reality that there might not be a tomorrow? I wonder if you, if you knew as a matter of fact that Christ was returning tomorrow night, how would that have an impact on how you would serve Him tomorrow? What sins would you relinquish? If you knew that Christ was coming tomorrow at, at 7 p.m., wouldn't you let go of all your idolatries? Wouldn't you let go of all your bitterness and all your anger and all your lust and all your covetousness? Wouldn't you repent? Wouldn't you seek to bring into even greater harmony what you confess here on Sunday and Lord's Day 12 with what you practice on Monday. By faith, I am a member of Christ, and so I share in His anointing. Christ has cleansed me, and Christ has consecrated me to present myself to Him as a living sacrifice of thanks. So we mindful of that when we wake up. Christ has consecrated me. He has set me aside for a purpose to devote myself to God, to praise God, to offer my body to Him, all that I do, all that I say, as, as a living sacrifice of thanks. Of course, I don't know the hour of our Lord's return, but Hebrews says the day is drawing near. It's close. It's at hand. And so until that day appears, may we live as those who have been cleansed, May we live as those who are confident. May we live as those who are consecrated to God. Indeed, he who testifies to all these things, he does say, surely I am coming soon. And so we pray even so, come, come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come before you again and we thank you that you have cleansed us. We thank you, Lord, for the blood of Jesus Christ that has cleansed our guilty consciences and that you've made us clean, washed us white as snow. 
Lord, we thank you that you've given us new confidence, that you've given us access, that even now we have something in Christ that the saints of the Old Testament can only see from afar. We have access even now to enter the Holy of Holies and to do so knowing that you will not kick us out. Lord, we thank you for the advocacy we have in Christ. Lord, we know that you call us not to sin, but how comforting it is to know that when we do sin, we have an advocate before you, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We thank you, O God, that he knows our names, that he advocates for us even now, that even now, Hebrews 2 says, he stands before you and says, it is I, O Father, and those whom you have given to me. We thank you, Lord, that our names are written on his heart. They're engraved upon his hands. So we might know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid us thence depart. Father, we recognize also that having cleansed us, you've also consecrated us. You have set us apart for service to offer our bodies up to you as living sacrifices of thanksgiving and praise. Father, we pray that you would help us to live in light of this reality, that just as you had stamped on the garments of the priests of old, holy unto the Lord, may that be stamped upon our foreheads as it were when we wake up in the morning, that we are holy unto you. We are to consecrate our lives to you. Lord, grant us grace to to stir one another up for good works and love for you. Help us, Lord, to take every advantage we have to meet together and to spur one another on to holiness and godliness. Grant us grace to do this all the more as the day of the Lord draws near. Lord, we don't know the day or the hour of that return, but we know that it's coming soon. And we pray that it would come soon. We would behold this great high priest face to face in all his beauty and all his glory. As we pray, O Lord, in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.